Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence at cmlibrary.org. Charlotte Readers Podcast is also supported by the novel Deadly Declarations, available in print and audiobook wherever books are sold, and an ebook on Amazon Kindle. Written by Landis Wade and narrated by Bill A. Jones, Deadly Declarations is a light-hearted legal thriller that delves into a 250-year-old colonial mystery that Founding Father John Adams called one of the greatest curiosities and one of the deepest mysteries that ever occurred to him. For reviews and information about Deadly Declarations, please visit LandisWade.com. The Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Listen to your city at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to the written words. In this episode 294, we visit with John Hood, author of Mountain Folks, the first book in a series of novels that combines elements of history, folklore, and epic fantasy to tell the story of America by bringing fantasy and history together. In Mountain Folks, a rare fairy named Gorin ventures into the human world where he encounters George Washington, Daniel Boone, an improbably tall dwarf named Har, a beautiful water maiden named Della, and a series of terrifying monsters from European, African, and Native American folklore. But when Gorin receives orders to help crush the American Revolution, he must choose between duty to his guild and family and a fierce loyalty to his human friends and the principles they hold dear. Winston-Salem Journal says mountain folk combines frontier history with the fantasy creatures in a fun and unexpected manner. Before we jump into the uninterrupted interview today, I'd like to thank you for spending some of your valuable time with us. We very much appreciate it, uh, and thank you for being here. I'm your host, Landis Wade. I'm a recovering trial lawyer turned author, turned podcaster of books and stories, and love interviewing authors about their books and sharing that uh, with you, the listener. I also love how interviewing more than 300 authors on this podcast has helped my own writing journey. I've learned quite a bit from these talented guests. And if you'd like to learn more about my books and uh, what I've done with that uh, knowledge, you can uh, check out LandisWade.com. You can sign up for my newsletter there. And uh, also, please follow me on BookBub. And for everything related to Charlotte Readers Podcast, check out CharlotteReadersPodcast.com. We've got a newsletter there as well. And by the way, with these newsletters, which come out monthly, we don't spam you because that takes way too much time. And finally, if you'd like uh, to get a free audiobook when you sign up for audiobooks at Libra.fm, just use the promo code Charlotte Reader and you're in business. Now, let's get to the episode. John, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Yeah, congratulations on the book. It's uh, it's been an interesting challenge. Well, let's talk a little bit about you uh, and your path to this book. Uh, I did a little research on you, as I'm prone to do when I do these interviews. You've been a syndicated columnist, a teacher, a foundation executive at the John Locke Foundation. And before this book, Mountain Folk, you wrote several critically acclaimed books of economic and political history, reported on governments from town councils to Congress, and wrote for the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, Military History, and dozens of other publications. Now you've written Mountain Folk and another in the 
folklore cycle series called Forest Folk. And, you know, I'm trying to understand this shift from the real world to the fairy world, uh, this historical fantasy thing. Uh, you once said perhaps it's just because I was in the 4-H club growing up, but I believe I can summarize my reasons for writing the novel in four words, history, heroes, heritage, and humanity. All right, there's your jumping off point, John. <laughs> well, I appreciate that question. It's not the first time I've heard it, and I think some of my critics would correct you and say that I've always written fiction. <laughs> but <laughs> right, it right, wasn't, right. It, at least I didn't bill it as fiction. Um, I have written a number of books, uh, mostly historical books, political history. I wrote a biography of a former governor of North Carolina, Jim Martin, who represented the Charlotte area for 12 years in Congress before he was elected governor wrote books about advertising, what was marketing like in ancient Carthage, all sorts of things like that, and have written about political topics and covered political uh, actors and, and legislatures and so forth for a long time. So I know it sounds and looks a little odd for me to have transitioned towards writing uh, historical fantasy novels, but while I'm hoping that people enjoy just the tales that I'm telling, and my readers certainly seem to be enjoying them, uh, there is a serious purpose here, and that formulation of 4-H, which is the histories, heroes, heritage, and human nature, is, is a useful way to think about it. So let me just quickly tell you what I meant by those, those 4-Hs. Uh, on the history side, uh, I have found, and in fact, because I'm a policy nerd at heart, I even did some research about this, uh, that fiction is a fantastic way, pun intended, to teach history. Uh, in fact, there are studies that show that when young people read historical fiction and a comparable set of young people read textbooks, the kids who read the historical fiction often remember more facts. They understand better the events being described, whether it be, in, be the American Revolution or ancient Rome or what it was like to live in China in 1700 or whatever. whatever. Fiction is often a valuable teaching tool, I think because it puts the reader in a place much more than a textbook does. Uh, it, it lets people take that imaginative leap to ma imagine that you're a peasant in 15th century Russia or imagine that you live in a Cherokee community in 1750. And the fiction allows you to drench yourself in the historical knowledge so much that maybe some of it sticks. I, I think that's at least a credible argument and look, we got to do something about our historical knowledge because it is woefully lacking. I did a piece about this a few months ago. About a third of Americans could pass the U.S. citizenship test. Now, they don't have to because they were born here for the most part, but that just tells you something about the lack of historical knowledge. I was shocked to find out, for example, that large numbers of our young people, and maybe our not-so-young people, uh, didn't realize that the Civil War and the War of 1812 happened after the American Revolution. Now, these are, <laughs> these are basic facts that you need to understand, not just American history, but America, period. And so yeah. with my folklore cycle, which is very much set in early America, the first book, Forest or uh, Mountain Folk, occurs in the colonial period and is largely composed of uh, episodes from the American Revolution. And then subsequent books explore the War of 1812, the Underground Railroad, the Trail of Tears, the Civil War, Western expansion, just a variety of traditional subjects, but done with fiction. 
Yeah, and let me just stop you there because I think you make a really good point. Um, uh, you know, we're recording this early, but uh, this is going to come out in May um, before you happen to be speaking to the May 20th Society. I was going to ask you about that uh, this year, but I, I've written a novel called Daily Decorations, and one of the reviewers said, you need to be careful because you might just learn some history in the process. You know? <laughs> and, and, and I think, you know, you're on to something here because uh, when you're reading a dry textbook, um, you know, you're thinking about dates and times and people, but when you're reading about characters that you can relate to, then the story comes alive. I think it does. And I think great teachers have always used examples and narratives to uh, command their students' attentions. And I think that that's also true when it comes to, to writing. Now, textbooks are fine. I l actually love textbooks myself, mm -hmm. but I'm a little weird. <laughs> well, <laughs> Most people well, need some mixture of dry fact. You do need facts. You need to understand sequen uh, sequential events and things like that. But you need to have an ability to to imagine what it would be like to live, for example, in, in feudal Europe, yeah. uh, which, which cannot be done necessarily just with a series of maps and a series of facts. I got a lot I want to ask you about today. And I know, I think the, of those four, you know, history we've, we've covered a little bit. I, I, can, I can get the heroes and the heritage because there's a lot of that we're going to talk about. What about the humanity aspect of the four H's? Well, humanity is an ironic thing for me to underline because so many of my characters are not humans. <laughs> they, they are fairies or, or others that I will not disclose because that would ruin some of the plot, uh, plot twists. Uh, but what I'm trying to get at here is that human nature, humanity, is a real thing. It's, we're not infinitely malleable creatures. Uh, we can't say, well, I don't like the way humans act, and so I'm going to change that. Uh, with the next generation and mold them into something else, human nature is a very hard constraint on our behavior. It can be good. It can be bad. We are subject to temptations. Power corrupts. <laughs> and so one of the big themes of Mountain Folk and its sequels is this issue of power. Uh, when you hold power, you can have the best of intentions and do the very worst of, of, of outcomes because you... No matter what you think you know, there's more that you don't know. No matter how much you care about other people and intend to do them well, sometimes they, in fact, do know better than you what is in their interest. And so the human nature part of this, which I do explore in part with historical characters like a, a Daniel Boone or a George Washington, but also with my fantasy and fairy characters, uh, it, it is really ultimately the theme of the book is what is human nature uh, what positive aspects of human nature can we lean into and what negative aspects of human nature, our temptations and flaws, uh, what do they tend to do to us, uh, particularly when, when uh, attached to power? So I wanted to ask you something about the fantasy side of this book. As I'm reading the novel, you know, I, I, I see this reference to uh, the blur. And, uh, you, you know, you, you say that... Uh, the, the blur is kind of this you know, world where the these characters you know come into from another place. They see the real world as the blur, and I'm just curious: is that and it's because it's moving much faster than the world That's that correct. they live in. And I'm wondering if th is that how you see the world itself that we're just moving at such a fast pace that unless we're supernatural beings, we can't really grasp. Well, it is true that I use the term the blur and the shimmer a lot, and it refers to my fictional world. 
interestingly, I, I'm not really inventing this. I, almost everything, I, there are a few characters or situations I completely invented. But what I tried to do, even with my fantasy elements of my epic fantasy tale here, is to borrow from real folklore. In other words, traditional beliefs. One of the traditional beliefs about fairies is that in fairy lands, wherever they are, time passes really slowly. People will be familiar with the Rip Van Winkle story, for example. Rip Van Winkle goes off into the mountains, he falls asleep or gets involved with some magical creatures, however you want to think about it. And when he wakes up, years, decades have passed. But to him, it wasn't that long. There are many stories like that from Cherokee folklore, Chinese folklore, African folklore. It's very common. And so I leaned into that and suggested that these fairy creatures actually live in worlds where time is passing slowly. So if you were standing in a fairyland and looking through the shimmer, which is this magical barrier between the fairyland and the real world, what would the real world look like? Well, it would sort of look like you're watching a tape on fast forward <laughs> and everything would be moving really quickly. Uh, we've seen old movies, you know, old silent movies where the action happens really quickly. And sometimes that's played for laughs, you know, like Keystone Cops or something like that. So what I tried to suggest is the blur is the real world. It's where humans live. It's where we live. And it's a blur, not to us, but to people looking in from elsewhere. Now, part of this is a fun fantasy idea. It, I don't do time travel, but this is a kind of like a time travel idea. If a fairy goes into the blur and experiences a lot of things and then goes back home, back home people may have been thought, may, may think he was gone for a day. In reality, he was gone for a month. Now, these are sort of fun things to play with narratively. <laughs> but actually, there is a meaning here, of course, which has to do with tradition and change. Uh, human nature is all about change. It's all about looking for something new, finding new ways to, to do things, new things to eat, trading with other people and learning from them. And indeed, I think that time for humanity has sped up a lot in the last 200 years. So I'm sim symbolizing that with this idea of the blur and then fairy people who live behind the shimmer in much slower moving, more traditional communities. Now to assume that I'm criticizing the fact that humanity moves quickly, that the blur, that lots of things are happening to the blur, is maybe to get ahead of the story a bit. So don't don't put any normative judgments on this right now, if you don't mind, Landis. Just imagine the human world moves really quick and the magical world does not. Yeah, no judgments. Uh, I will say this, though. Uh, you've got a good conflict going on in the story, and you've doubled the conflict because the colonial period with the Revolution War has got enough conflict in and of itself. But you've created two storylines here, one in the magical world and one in the real world during this period of time. And, and I'd be interested, so, so, in fact— and in the magical world, you have some people that want the British to win and some people that want the colonists to win. Yes. Talk about why some magical beings want the colonists to win and some magical beings want Great Britain to win. Well, uh, to, to make a uh, admittedly long story short, yeah. um, uh, fairy creatures in general think of human beings as sort of like their livestock, and they're hard, and they say this in the book. They actually use these these examples uh, specifically. That human beings are their source of what they call human wares, things that they can use, um, and uh, food and clothing and things like that. And they also guard their human livestock against monsters that are threatening them. And so, from their perspective, it is important for human beings to know their place, and for there to be an orderly. 
uh, uh, setup here. You know, you know, you're if you're in the flock, you're in the flock. If you're a shepherd, you're a shepherd. Don't start thinking, hey, Mister Lamb, that you could be, <laughs> that you could grow up to be a shepherd. You can't. You're just sheep. And so the idea that colonists would break away from their mother country and no longer be under the subject of a king disturbs most fairy leaders, of course, who are also ruled by kings and queens and aristocratic councils, and they don't like this idea. So almost all the fairy lands, uh, fairy people who live in America, whether they be from Europe or Native American fairies, which are a significant part of my story, uh, they don't really want the, the Americans to break free, but some do either because they have made friends with and come to empathize with human beings, with, with Americans who are oppressed, or because they're starting to think that maybe their model of governance in the fairy world isn't so hot. So that that's the short version of the story. Uh, you will be entertained, perhaps, Landis, to learn that some of the speeches that the fairies give when they're debating, you know, should we support the English king or should we support the American colonies, I'm actually adapting some of those actual words from things that Patriots said or things that Tories said. I use historical, because I'm a, ultimately a journalist and a researcher, I use historical documents to inform my fantasy dialogue. That is, that is perfect. <laughs> you, you put the words of, of the real folks into the heads and minds of, of the fairy folk. You got and use it. it to, yeah, that's great. So uh, this is probably a good time. Uh, author is giving voice to the written words on Charlotte's podcast. This is a Well, scene you're going to read that's early in the book, and it it provides some context to some of the things you've been talking about here. Um, We've got, uh, we're only about uh, 18 or 19 pages into the book, and I think this is the scene where uh, the the protagonist, who's the fairy, um, let's see, Gorham, right? Uh, Gorham, yes. Gorham, and then uh, Daniel Boone uh, meet uh, for the first time, and uh, they've had a little encounter. They've... uh, They've had to fight a, a creature. Daniel's had to have some help doing that from Gorin because he uh, he kind of got his back against the wall there, so to speak. And I think this is the conversation they're having um, after they're getting a little bit acquainted uh, after this event has gone down. Anything else you want to say about that before you read it? Well, just two things for our listeners that might they might enjoy or at least you know not be too annoyed with me about. The enjoyment part is this scene actually occurs in North Carolina in a place you can visit called Hanging Rock State Park, which is just north of Greensboro. And so I have walked this particular hill to make sure that it could happen. <laughs> so the, just just thought you might enjoy that. Um, also, Gorin, the sylph, which is a winged fairy, the sylph uh, Gorin is from a community that was originally living in Cornwall in the west of England. So I'm going to attempt to have a slight inflection here, just so you can tell the difference between the Cornish fairy and Daniel Boone, who's got you know, a little bit of a frontier accent. I'm not going to lean heavily into my into my Mecklenburg County roots because Daniel Boone was actually from Pennsylvania, but you'll you'll be able to tell the difference. So here we go. We are not from your world, Daniel, but we must live alongside it. Gorin said, "We only want to survive as you do. We act to protect our homes and families." but we also act to protect you humans. When we find that we must intervene in your affairs, sometimes it is to save ourselves. Other times it is to save you from yourselves, from your human follies. It is nothing you need to worry about, though. We only do it for your own good. Daniel didn't much like the sound of that, but he chose to keep his own counsel on the matter. Instead, he asked, If your spells are so good at scouring memories, Gorin, then how come I knew what you were when I saw you? 
How come we humans know about fairies and magic and monsters at all? The fairy shook his head in amazement. Again, Daniel, very astute of you. Our spell song is far from perfect. Nothing in your realm or any realm can be perfect. As a rule, our songs eliminate any memory of us from the human mind. There are, however, exceptions to every rule. Some human memories survive spell song, but they're hazy, jumbled, incomplete. Such memories pose little danger. Half-recalled daydreams suffused with fantasy and longing that fuel your imaginations and inspire your storytellers. Gorin turned and nodded at the other fairies who circled the bound, unconscious monster. Daniel gasped as the robed ones made signs with their arms and appeared to draw in the shimmering light previously emanating from their fingertips. Daniel again felt a mysterious wind and saw a flicker like the flame of a candle. In an instant, the fairies vanished. All except Gorin. He fluttered his wings and lifted off the fallen log. I know you will not understand this, Daniel, but I am an exception myself. You see, for most of my folk, existing in your world beyond our protective shimmer is possible for only brief passages of time before we go mad or perish. A few of us are born different, though. We possess certain qualities that allow us to live long stretches of time in your world. We become rangers. Gorin looked into the distance with a melancholy expression, as if seeing not what the fairy's eyes beheld in Daniel's world, but instead what lay in the fairy's own memories. We do not have all the answers ourselves, make no mistake, Gorin continued. No one knows for sure how long even highly resistant, well-trained rangers can survive in the blur. But tasks must be performed there. We need resources, supplies, protection, and the monster peril must be contained. The fairy was right. Daniel hadn't understood what Gorin said, not fully. But he could read the signs that were as plain as the nose on his new friend's face. He knew their conversation was nearing its end. One final time, Daniel, I offer you my deepest appreciation for all you have done, and I extend to you my heartfelt goodbye. Farewell, friend, the human hunter responded. Best of luck till we meet again. Alas, the fairy said, we will never meet again. And then he began to sing. It was a tired Daniel Boone who trudged along the banks of the mountain creek. On top of that, he was mighty hungry. He was looking forward to beans and venison when he got back to camp. Should I try one more time to shoot up some game? Daniel had great confidence in his skill with his rifle, but even the greatest marksman who ever lived would struggle to hit a bird, treed or otherwise, in the pitch black of night. Besides, he'd already fired his rifle twice that day. Shot and powder weren't easy to come by, not back home in Pennsylvania, and certainly not in the more remote Carolina backcountry. Daniel supposed this would just have to be one of those rare times he went on a hunt and came back with nothing but a tall tale. Actually, in this case, he'd have to come back with even less, and besides, there wouldn't be anyone awake to hear the tale. The Boons would all have been asleep for hours when he got back to camp. Or would it be daybreak by then? Daniel got to thinking again about the cold beans and dried venison. I wonder what fairies eat for supper, he asked out loud to no one in particular. I never got a chance to ask, and Gorin never volunteered anything about it. Oh, well, 
the fairy was free to keep whatever secrets he wished. Daniel was good at keeping secrets, too. <laughs> That's great. Thanks for that reading. Um, so a couple of questions about uh, the characters that we do know. You feature a number of uh, uh, real-world participants, you know, Daniel Boone, the opening scene you just read, George Washington. Uh, also, some maybe lesser known is Peter Mullenberg, who was a minister turned uh, General Isaac Shelby, to name a few. And I'm wondering um, how you went about choosing these characters. And really the question I'm really focused on is, which of these characters did you were you surprised by what you learned about them in your research that you didn't know before you got started? Well, that's a great question. There, there are six point of view characters in Mountain Folk. Four of them are humans and two of them are not. Uh, Goran, who we've just met a moment ago, is one of the point of view characters who's not a human. And another one is is Har, the tower, who is a really tall dwarf. And I'll just leave that there. But Daniel Boone, I knew a whole lot about already. And he was sort of my first choice because that scene I was just describing that happens in Hanging Rock State Park in North Carolina, that was the first scene that cropped into my head that made me write this book in the first place. But picking the others was a little more challenging. Peter Muhlenberg, who ended up being a, mem a member of the very first Congress of the United States, his brother Frederick Muhlenberg was the first speaker of the U.S. House, uh, both uh, representatives from Pennsylvania. He's somebody I knew a little bit about, but not a lot. I chose Peter Muhlenberg as one of my point of view characters because I wanted someone who had German or some kind of non-English ancestry to illustrate the non-English and non-Scotch-Irish sort of origins of some of the American colonists. That's number one. Number two, I wanted someone who uh, had a significant career after the events of the book, as I said, being in Congress, uh, and also wanted someone who had a clear religious perspective. Uh, Peter Muhlenberg was ultimately, initially, he was a minister. He was a Lutheran minister who became a political activist and ultimately a general in George Washington's army. If you've ever heard of Muhlenberg College in Pennsylvania, that's named after his father. Uh, another character was Isaac Shelby. People will recognize perhaps the last name Shelby, this is the fellow for whom the North Carolina town of Shelby was named and lots of other Shelbys around the country. Isaac Shelby is my uh, first cousin uh, several times removed. So I chose him because he's a member of my family and why can't I? It's my book. But also he became the first uh, governor of the state of Kentucky and was a hero of the significant revolutionary battle of Kings Mountain, which I wanted to depict in Mountain Folk. So Isaac Shelby was sort of an obvious choice. I learned a little bit more about him than I used to know, uh, but not a lot. And finally, the other human character is Nanyehi. Nanyehi is a Cherokee woman, uh, sometimes went by the English name Nancy Ward. Nanyehi I knew a little bit about, but not a lot, and was delighted to learn as much as I could about her and put her in the book. Just like with Peter Muhlenberg, I wanted to have a Native American character in the book to represent that perspective of early colonial uh, America. And Nanya, he is a fantastic character for that. She is a warrior in her youth who becomes a peacemaker as she gets older and played a significant role in the relationship between the Cherokee nations and uh, the American colonies. So, John, there's a little section of your book that uh, piqued my interest uh, because of my novel that's out now that features the Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence. you got a little scene in what was then called Charlottetown. You talk about the meeting in May of 1775 that occurred there. Um, but uh, you don't go all the way. I don't think I saw the words uh, Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence in there. And you're going to be speaking to the, you know, at the MECDEC dinner. So what gives? Are you a believer? 
Uh, I am a believer. I don't know that I don't think we have the original version, uh, <laughs> right. which is different from thinking it was a myth. Uh, a lot of the people who argue that it was a myth are working from the, you know, the reconstructed. Oh, I, I won't go into details about sure, this. Sure. We, but can do that another, we can do that another time. Absolutely. But uh, I, I've been, I mean, I have two ancestors who were signat signatories of the Declaration yeah. of Independence, Adam Alexander and John Query. I uh, have a lot of interest in it. Another cousin of mine, Archibald Henderson, uh, was a great scholar at UNC Chapel Hill in the 18 and early 1900s who wrote a lot about it. So I'm very interested in the topic and have a lot of opinions about it. In the book, I make actually reference to the Mecklenburg Resolves, right. uh, which is undisputably a thing. It was published. Right. In real, and so there's no question something happened, exactly what was issued. I think it was not just the Mecklenburg Resolves. I don't think we have a copy of it. But yes, I do allude to that. And in fact, just to back up for a second, I, I am writing historically minded epic fantasy. All right. So one of the tropes of epic fantasy that I really like, think about the Lord of the Rings and Tolkien's work. There are some events that, that Tolkien alludes to that he doesn't explain. There are ruins that you visit in the story of the Lord of the Rings, and you have no idea what the ruins are of, and he never tells you. You have this sense of scope. There's a lot more going on in this world than can be learned in this one book. That's why I make reference to things like the Mecklenburg Declaration and a variety of other events that are interesting, and I'm merely interested in them, but they're not part of the book. They're part of the broader mythos, part of the broader setting of the book. I make reference to the, uh, the quote, arrival with a capital A. Fairies apparently arrived on earth at some point in the past, and they make reference to it, but I don't explain it. And Landis, I'm not going to explain it, <laughs> at least not right now. It's gonna, that's going to come a lot later in the series. Exactly. So any uh, primer you can give us on what you're going to talk about at the MegDeck dinner this year? I'm going to talk about how important it is that we learn our history because history is not about the past. It is an account of the past, but the reason we're interested in it is because history is about the future. Uh, you study history so you can make better decisions. You study history so you can better predict the future to the extent that's possible. Uh, when we treat history as simply a, a kind of an abstract collection of facts or you know an interesting just-so story that you tell before you go to bed, we, we under, underestimate just how important historical understanding is. And what I love about groups like uh, the May uh, 20th Society or other kinds of historical groups around the state, around the country that I'm interested in, is that they make the, the study of history and the cherishing of history a ceremony. And I think that's important. I think the Fourth of July is a fantastic holiday. I think President's Day is a fantastic holiday. It, it isn't just that it reminds you of events in the past that matter. It's that you, you venerate them. You take them seriously like they're still part of your family, part of your household. And that's what I'm trying to do with Mountain Folk is have people enjoy a, what I hope is a ripping yarn and have some fun and have some you know, fun about fantasy characters interacting with George Washington. You learn why the cherry tree got chopped down, for example, which I won't ruin it for anybody. Yeah, so you learn that it. sort of thing. But uh, you're also uh, at the same time sort of being confronted with historical truths that are still true and still valid today. Yeah, I think it's great because you're reaching audiences that uh, you might not otherwise reach by adding this fantastical component to it, but also being true to, you know, uh, the history itself. And one of the things you did, John, that I want to let our listeners know about is if they go to your website, and we've got links in our show notes at, at charlerspodcast.com, 
they're going to find out about this uh, video, uh, these 10 videos you've done uh, where you went out into the world, you visited places in North Carolina that you wrote about in the book. I think it's a fantastic uh, marketing uh, deal that you did, but it was probably a lot of fun, wasn't it? It was. I, 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 you didn't mention this in my intro, but I also spent about 25 years on television in some fashion or the other. So I have a lot of experience with that, not so much on the production side, but on the yapping side. But what I really enjoyed was going to these locations, walking the mountains, walking the forests, walking by the rivers. If, it's, if it was a setting for my book that allowed me, for example, to determine whether you could really run up that hill. I mean, I did a, a, a shot from Hanging Rock uh, where there is a later scene that involves uh, some heroes of the story uh, contesting with some villains on a hill. And the original version of the story I had to rewrite because I went to the hill and tried to run up it. And it was too steep. So well, <laughs> I can't do this. So I got to change the way this goes. But the the videos, and there's also a video series about to come out for the next book in the series, Forest Folk, where I travel to Virginia and Georgia and Alabama and lots of other places. But part of the idea here is, again, to connect this historical fantasy tale that has dwarves and elves and monsters in it to real places. And in fact, Landis, to, to real places you can visit where there is a folklore tradition of fairies and monsters and other fake things, mo uh, imaginary things. Uh, because all the folklore and the fantasy that I use, pretty much, I'm borrowing from stories that people really used to tell about particular locations. And I think that's fun. It's different from just saying, I'm going to completely invent magical characters and throw them into the American Revolution. I had more fun than that. I use, for example, a monster in Jersey called the Jersey Devil that is a familiar monster. In fact, there's a hockey team named the, De the Jersey Devils. Uh, but I use that in a Revolutionary War battle. But that was a real tradition of sightings of these weird creatures that were flying around the, the New Jersey Pine Barrens. And that's a lot more fun than just inventing something, isn't it? It is. And I noticed I was watching one of the videos and, and it was uh, the confluence of two rivers that come into the Cape Fear. And you mentioned how that was a point at which settlers at the time thought they saw mermaids, you know, yes. off, off the point. And then you take us to the battlefields, you take us to magical monsters, historic homes. Uh, it, it's a really fun way probably for people to get into the book. So if you're not sure, go look at the videos. And then once you get hooked, you can... You can buy the book as well. Okay, a couple of uh, writing life questions before we wrap up here. Um, All right. You um, combine these two worlds. Um, clearly, there's research that relates to the real world, but is there also research that relates to the fairy world as well? Absolutely. Uh, I mind a variety of different veins of folklore about about fairies and monsters, going back to things like the the, the Fairy Queen by Edmund Spencer. Gulliver's Travels, which you have encountered since you've been reading the book, you know it's actually referenced in the book, the events of Gulliver's Travels. So I have tr sort of traditional literature about monsters and folk and fairies that I use, but also storytelling traditions, including Cherokee and Creek Indian traditions and Catawba Indian traditions. The Catawba Indians, for example, had fairies called the Yahasuri, um, and so I use them. So these are these are traditions that existed. People told these stories for generations, and I, I went and found them, in, sometimes in old documents, sometimes in more recent collections. Uh, I've, I've went and looked at various collections of folk tales. I looked at academic, because I'm weird and nerdy, I actually did academic literature searches and pulled information from anthropologists who were writing about, you know, writing in the 1870s about 
magical stories that they heard from elder, you know, elder chiefs of the Cherokee Nation, that sort of thing. Yeah. And, you know, your recent book just uh, came out April 15th, Forest Folk, in which you've uh, bring in some more characters. You're um, at the beginning of the 19th century. We're going to see uh, Davy Crockett, Ichabod Crane, and others. And I'm curious um, because you actually mentioned that there's going to be, you know, other books that lead into other areas. Do you plan this arc out in advance with all these different books? Have you already done that, John? Have you got kind of a spreadsheet where you're going with this? Yes, I do. I have a spreadsheet. <laughs> and uh, I, when I was writing nonfiction books, I was sometimes ridiculed by my colleagues and my publisher for having weekly deadlines because I started out as a newspaper journalist and magazine journalist, and I'm used to deadlines. So when it comes to the spreadsheet, I'll just tell you real quick, there are seven novels that I have uh, conceptualized for the folklore cycle. I have their titles. I have the basic plot lines laid out. But I'm also writing short stories and novellas in between them. So there's already a, a novella out called The Bard, which is a mountain folk tale that's on my website for free. And that's that's a story that occurs in one particular month in February of 1776, and it does involve those mermaids that are on the Cape Fear River. So between each of the seven novels, I plan to write one or more short stories or novellas, short novels, to further build out my world. And I finish all seven and Mrs. Hood doesn't veto it. Um, I may even do some more writing in this faction in this fantasy world, but I think seven novels is a lot, don't you? I, I do, and I think planning them out that far in advance uh, is is very uh, well. Let's just say I'm a recovering trial lawyer who always wanted to get things right. You, you sound like you're a recovering uh, policy, you know, journalist. Whatever. I'm not sure how a... much I'm recovering. Um, <laughs> you're still in the damage. Maybe permanent. <laughs> maybe permanent. Well, other thing, just uh, I noticed that uh, in your fir your first website or whatever was named after your first book, and that might be a lesson to other authors. If you know you're going to write another book, maybe name it after the series or something. That's yeah. correct. I I did have mountainfolkbook.com as a separate website. I realized pretty quickly, well, I'm not going to have separate websites for every book. <laughs> right. So I so the folklore so folklorecycle.com is my website, and I right. folded the material. But I do use, like, mountainfolkbook.com will take you to the appropriate page. Right. Forestfolkbook.com, which I also own that domain, that will take you to the appropriate page of, of that novel. So I'm actually going to have lots of these domains that simply punch you over to specific pages on, on folklorecycle.com. All right. One last uh, writing life question here. Um, you've got two novels out now in this series. Um You've written other books as well. If you could tell your younger writing self something of value that had you known it when you first started writing books, it might have helped you then. What would it be? Because I started out as a reporter, collecting facts and writing a story, writing a story about what happened at last night's town council meeting or whatever, or, or what happened at the congressional hearing, uh, the markup of the, of the House Ways and Means Committee bill or whatever. I tended to think in those terms. And when you start thinking in fictional terms, some of that can come in really handy, but some of it can be too prescriptive. So uh, what I learned early on in my writing, again, I wrote seven nonfiction books before I started messing around with fiction. I learned very quickly that I was not capable of writing a book. I was never going to write a book. It's too daunting a task. If someone's ever sat down and said, I'm going to write a book. It's too much. What I could write was a series of articles that, if you tied them together, was a pretty good book about the history and economics of advertising, for example. But each one of those chapters could be a separate thing. 
So I could write article after article after article, look up a year later and say, hey, by the way, I just wrote my book. So when I transitioned towards fiction, uh, I thought it was going to be that way, but it wasn't. Again, I didn't. I knew I wasn't going to sit down and write a novel, but I also can't write a series of chapters that don't really tie together uh, in the same way. So what I ended up doing was realizing that the answer, at least for me, for the kind of writing I do, is to construct a world, make sure it makes sense, populate it with interesting, rich characters, and then let them do the work. And that... That sounds kind of silly, but I'll just tell you, when I carefully plotted out Mountain Folk, I knew exactly what was going to happen in every chapter. And then I started writing, and about halfway through, my, my characters sort of figuratively looked up at me and said, no, we're not going to do this. I don't care if you want us to do this or not. We're not this is because what I had done is that I'd created characters and, and a certain sort of sequence of events that had a logic that conflicted with my plan. And so guess what? I gave up my plan. And I know this, again, I know this sounds ridiculous unless maybe you have written a a novel yourself, particularly like an adventure novel. But when I got to the penultimate chapter where the big action was happening, the final, but I was kind of on the edge of my seat. I wasn't entirely sure what was going to happen. And frankly, even which characters would survive. And when I determined that a certain character was not going to survive, uh, I mourned the passing of that character as a, somebody that I knew and no longer would be able to work with. Yeah, that's a wonderful thing. It's, the, it's what I call the secret to writing fiction, which is essentially magic. <laughs> you know, you don't know what's going to happen sometimes until you sit down at the computer or pick up the it's paper. True. And, and that's and, not the way I wrote nonfiction or write my columns. And, and it shouldn't be because that's a different style. All right. Well, uh, listeners, we're going to wrap it up here in just a second. But I want to let you know that we're going to jump over to Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Charlotte Readers Podcast, where you can uh, get uh, over 120 uh, exclusive episodes. You can support us for a few dollars a month. And you're going to get this one that John and I are going to do. We're calling it our 10 minutes of... Uh, reading and writing tips uh, with John Hood. Uh, so join us there at that channel. Hey, John, listen, thanks so much for uh, being a guest on Charlotte Rear's podcast and uh, good luck with this series. Thank you very much for having me. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. You can subscribe to this podcast for free at Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, most any podcast platform you like to listen to your podcast on. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. For more information, go to queencitypodcastnetwork.com.